You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From New York Magazine's Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Nice Try. I'm Avery Truffleman, and this is the sound of my apartment. But Jason should be here any moment now. Here he is. I want to end this season with the act of someone entering my home. Sir, hi! Hi, how are you doing? An act that is at times mundane or transgressive or exciting, especially if this someone comes bearing a package. Uh, All the way to the top. All right. Do you need help? When an item enters your home, you don't always have complete control over it can't always be curated or planned. When you rescue a chair from the street, or someone gives you a mattress because they're moving, or you inherit a crockpot from an aunt, there's not always a precise logic to what comes into your haven. Can we unbox this first, or should we unbox this second? It's up to you. It's your show. Once I tell you a little bit more about Jason, it's going to become clear that it's kind of funny that he has driven out a fair distance to my apartment to drop off a package. Because most of what Jason Scott does all day long is pick up stuff from other people. Uh, Let's see. Things that I have taken. A warehouse full of manuals for electronic equipment from 1935 to 2005. A collection of... Atari software and computers from a couple where one of them had died and the other one wanted it to go to somewhere meaningful. Jason Scott is a historian and, as he puts it, a free-range archivist for the Internet Archive. It's a digital library probably best known for The Wayback Machine, an online archive of over 629 billion websites. But long before Jason started working there, The stated goal of the Internet Archive and the credo of founder Brewster Kahle was universal access to all knowledge. And then I show up and I'm like, boy, is there a lot of knowledge? (laughs) I would love to make that knowledge available. Jason picks up boxes of old rave flyers, cassette tapes of obscure bands from the 80s and 90s who have only ever played two shows, Recordings of commercials that ran over speakers at Kmart. VHSs of limited-run anime series. Meeting notes from a furry convention. All to be digitized and uploaded into the Internet Archive. I'll get a call from somebody, and they'll say, I have 300 videotapes that came from my grandfather. He recorded Disneyland every time he went. You seem like the person who would take it. I kind of function as like a Baba Yaga of archiving, where somebody just says, Jason Scott should look at this. And... I get that anywhere between 6 and 12 times a week. Somebody will evoke me. So I show up within an hour, and I'm like, yes, how's it going? Anyone need any help here? 
the unfathomably large and super-secret storage space of the Internet Archive is measured by the shipping container. Jason told me their smallest storage space, their smallest, is 90 shipping containers. We're on track to pull in one million items this year. Jason is collecting and scanning and uploading an ever-expanding Golden Voyager record, a snowballing time capsule with no particular end in sight and no sense of who in the future would have a reason to use all this stuff. Most of this work is going dun, 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 so that in like a thousand years, someone will go dun, dun. (laughs) And you don't know. You have no idea what's going to be on the other end of this. How do you decide when something's worth that? Because, yeah, you could collect anything and everything. Well, it's somewhat speculative. I certainly have made mistakes. This is the story of one of those mistakes, which Jason then transferred to me. It was another day at work for rogue archivist Jason Scott. As he does, he got a call from someone trying to clean out a warehouse. And it turned out it was rooms and rooms of old magazines and books and tons of old computer manuals. And this just looked like classic Internet Archive fodder. Jason could totally scan it and upload it. And maybe some of this would mean something to someone one day. And... The original owner of this collection had already paid for moving and storage, so all Jason would have to do would be to redirect the movers to the Internet Archive's undisclosed location. I said, well, I think we should take all of it. I didn't check with work. I just said, we will take all of it. But what Jason didn't realize was that all of it, among the 20 to 30 pallets of books and catalogs and paraphernalia, also included 143 typewriters. And I was like, well, I can't separate the typewriters. So here we go. Now we have 143 typewriters. Would you have wanted? Would you have? No, we would have never agreed. How are we going to digitize it? How are we going to deal with it? We have enough problems trying to deal with like getting print into digital form and storing it properly. Are we really going to go into the physical business? It turned out that this collection that Jason had agreed to take on was the collection of Martin Titel, founder of the Titel Typewriter Company, which sold all kinds of brands in their store on Fulton Street. It was in Manhattan, and it was massive, and it had hundreds and hundreds of typewriters at any given time. Legend has it, Titel was so formidable that if you addressed a letter to Mr. Typewriter, New York, it would end up at Titel. Apparently, Martin Titel was a wizard. He could modify typewriters to type in other alphabets or reverse their mechanisms to write in a right-to-left language. And then there was the secondary business of doing forensic analysis of typewriters for law enforcement and government and individuals. Because you can trace back letters to certain eras of typewriter and even trace documents back to individual machines. Like when Dan Rather came under fire for presenting inauthentic documents about George W. Bush's service in the Texas National Air Guard, Martin Titel's son, Peter Titel, was one of the experts who determined the documents were fakes. The Titel Typewriter Company was in business for more than 66 years. Martin Titel retired in 2000, and the business closed a year later. His son, Peter, who had been mostly doing the forensic stuff, moves offices and takes a sample. This sample of typewriters included a Smith Corona Coronamatic 8000, an Olivetti Latera 25, a typewriter in Arabic, a typewriter in Hebrew, 
makes and models from all different eras and a range of colors and materials from wood veneer to orange plastic. And they must have been kept for some reason. So whatever... Whatever he saw in these... Whatever he saw in these, he's like, I'm keeping them. Like, this is something. Yeah. Peter Titel passed away August 11th, 2020, one week before all these trucks came to cart the archive away. Jason didn't know why these typewriters, of all the Titel typewriters, were the ones saved. But nevertheless, Jason was saddled with them. The Internet Archive was confronted with a ghostly flock of its predecessor. Hardware, hard matter, with no data other than their own mechanical bodies. Nothing to scan, nothing to store. Just 143 round pegs for the Internet Archive's square hole. Typewriters are almost living things. They are a combination of metal and plastic interlocking into gears along with ink that needs to stay wet. And over time, it can start to decay if you don't use it and make sure everything's doing fine. So now we've got 143 of them, which is why I started actively pursuing finding homes for them to lend to for extended periods of time, because otherwise they're going to sit in the same place we store books, and they shouldn't. And this is why Jason had come to my apartment. What's in the boxes? So two different typewriters... Two typewriters for me to choose from, both from the collection of Martin Titel. But Jason made it very clear which one he thought was the better choice. It is very clear that this is more deluxe. So you can, you'll see, when you, when you type on it, you'll go, oh, oh, okay. Her and, name uh, is Erica, um, with a K. Erica Classic. Um. Erica is an Electra 3 model from the 1960s, German-made. Banged up a little. Mint green, with the lid missing, so you can peer right into her mechanics. And it wouldn't be enough to keep Erica on a shelf. If I was going to really care for her, for this piece of the Titel collection, I was going to have to use her. I would have to relearn how to type. Practice, you know, learning the feel of it. This is hard. It is hard. Erica immediately made my fingertips hurt. My letters alternated between too faint to read and blurry wet with ink. My spacing was not uniform, and I quickly remembered that I do not know how to spell anything. I suddenly realized she might have been more fun in theory than in practice. After all, Erica was only the fifth typewriter Jason had managed to rehouse, probably because he was trying to keep them all local in New York. I made one sterling miscalculation, which is New Yorkers have no space and a typewriter is big. It's true. Erica promptly rendered my little kitchen table unusable. So all the people I've been contacting are like, that is amazing. I cannot have that in my apartment. And I'm like, oh, no. In the city, there's only so much one can take in and take on. Piles of unwanted, expendable objects surface like beached whales before they get swept away by the next tide of collection. But Erica, on the other hand, is supposed to be as eternal as a pet tortoise. There are people who are like, oh my God, thank you for this pet. And other people who are like, wow, one third of my life is gone now. Nothing appeals universally. And there will always be a small set of people who are able to make old things come alive again, either by using them, talking about them, interacting with them, right? I wanted to be one of those people, someone who could revive this dying artifact with sheer force of will and enthusiasm, like clapping for Tinkerbell. 
I do believe in typewriters. I do. I do. And so I tried to make it a practice. I wrote notes. I wrote poetry. I wrote rambles. And suddenly I found myself writing love letters. Because right around the same time Erica entered my life, a friend of a friend entered my life as well. And as we started to eat more of our meals together and talk later and longer, I began to type for him. Little fragments that I could send in the mail or leave as surprises in his jacket pockets without autocorrect to hide my errors, without autocomplete to make me coherent. He bought me a notepad of cream-colored Japanese stationery, a quiet encouragement to go on. Erica turned my errant thoughts into physical tokens I could hand him, which he gathered and put in a box. They became worth archiving. And as I typed, I felt I understood why E. Cummings used all lowercase, why Kerouac preferred one long, continuous sheet. I fell into a rhythm where my stream of consciousness was instantly rendered concrete, unable to delete or second-guess myself. And the thing about falling in love is that it can be so embarrassing. Like, how embarrassing to get swept up in someone else and lose your composure and start writing in cheesy, soaring cliches like that. Perhaps the only thing more embarrassing than falling in love is simultaneously falling in love with a typewriter. And then perhaps the only thing more embarrassing would be to make a podcast about it. But because Erica's German, I think this is particularly pertinent. In German, there are two ways to say I love you. One basically translates to I have love for you. That's what you would say to your friends, maybe to describe important movies that change your life. You have love for it. You wouldn't say I love you in German to anyone except maybe a partner or a parent. It's this sacred thing. So when I went to Germany, I was mercilessly mocked for throwing my love around in this very American way. I love this song. I love your shoes. I love pickles. In America, love is quite literally invoked to sell you Subarus and McDonald's. We have become indiscriminate and materialistic with that most divine of feelings. And yet, I think that criticism is a little too simplistic. Honestly, when we came up with the idea for what this season of Nice Try was going to be about, I was fully bracing myself to walk away from it thoroughly disgusted. I've notoriously been very judgy about people who gush about their Instant Pots and their Roombas and their smart doorbells. But in the course of reporting this series and going to people's houses and talking to historians and talking to experts and talking to CEOs, I have been moved by how objects, even the buzziest, fattiest gadgets, can change people and change interactions. Lives can get improved by weights and bidets and fancy mattresses. We can fall in love with even those things. I think we can love things. It's just a different kind of love that maybe needs its own German word. A love that is about seeing things for what they really are, which is fallible. So Erica kept getting stuck, or her keys would pile up, or she appeared to not be taking her ink. One, two, one, two. And in Manhattan, there is truly one place you can go to give your typewriter a checkup. Gramercy Typewriter, Sales and Repairs, established 1932. The last shop on the island devoted exclusively to typewriters. Hi there. (laughs) 
Thank you so much. I'm Avery. Oh, Jay Schweitzer. Nice to meet you. Jay is the proprietor of Gramercy Typewriter. It's a narrow storefront with glass cases full of refurbished typewriters. Jay inherited the business from his father, who inherited the business from his father. Jay wears a work jacket with rolled up sleeves. He adeptly rolls a piece of paper into Erica and conducts a standardized test. A couple of things stand out. If we're looking at this keyboard, it's probably safe to say that at some point this was replaced. The key, key. The key for the letter P is a little discolored. Oh. And maybe this one. Oh, so this was loved. Jay diplomatically ignored that romantic aside. Certainly it wouldn't come from the factory like that. Right. right. Jay basically said that Erica was in great condition, but very politely hinted that I just didn't know how to use her. Um, often we'll have people come in with a machine that they think doesn't work right, and I find that it works fine. And it's just because the user is just not used to the way it feels. Okay, so I had my work cut out for me. But I kept waiting for Jay to drop any sort of hint about what he thought of Erica herself. Like, what was she as a machine? If Erica were a car, would she be a Camry? Would she be an Audi? This, this entry-level car is going to suit you fine. Okay, it's not like this is a particularly magical model or anything. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> no. Gramercy was full of all different kinds of typewriters for sale across all different eras, with prices ranging from $200 to $2,000. So even as an entry-level car, I felt like Erica might still stand among their ranks. So I just asked Jay how much typewriters like Erica would sell for. Well, I wouldn't sell them. <laughs> but, you know, this is the type of thing that you don't see in a typewriter shop. Maybe you'd see in an antique store, thrift store, a vintage shop, where they have clothes and furniture and artwork. And they would sell something like these. You know, these are like $50 machines. <laughs> Now I'm so embarrassed. And suddenly, I felt like such a hipster dipshit that I brought Erica in at all. It's not like I was looking to sell Erica, but I really did think she'd be worth more than $50. She was this special piece of a saved collection from Mr. Typewriter himself. And that at least made it a little less insufferable that I had fallen so head over heels for her. I was suddenly ashamed at being over-romantic, being too quick to love. But if Erica was so common, so unvaluable, why the hell was Erica one of the 143 typewriters saved by Titel? Have you heard of Titel typewriter? Yes. My dad would tell me to run down there. Maybe they needed a part from us. We needed a part from them. At a certain point, typewriter stores all had to depend on each other. There was a time back in the day where, where we all had catalogs from the parts manufacturers, and we'd be able to order as much and whatever we needed at any time. Um, fast forward, those companies are long gone, so you're left with having to have parts machines where you can pull these things from to make another machine live on. In fact, before Jason Scott got the call about the Titel collection, Jay Schweitzer did. Yes, yes. It was um, sometime after they closed shop, and the owner at that time did get in touch with us. And did you take anything from there? Not, not a lot. But you didn't want these, like maybe even these specific ones from, from the Titel typewriter collection. Why was that? In a perfect world, I would have liked to go down there and say, I'll take everything. We will take all of it. But it just wasn't feasible. 
I'm sure anyone that went in there, their space was limited too. So they probably picked and choosed, and eventually they were left with things like these. So these are kind of the bottom of the barrel in a weird way. Um, these may have been machines that were around if parts were needed. So Erica was saved for an eventual organ harvest. There's nothing that's very rare here, uh, nothing that's uncommon. I'd gotten so caught up in Erica. She'd seemed so beautiful to me, and she still was, but certifiably, she was nothing special. And so I began to nurse a little bit of doubt, like the first uncomfortable silence you share with someone. However, someone can use this and enjoy it, and it has a little bit of a story. But what is Erica's story? Like, yeah, okay, she's old. But when I think about other cool old objects examined in this series, the hearty vintage vacuum cleaners and the sonorous doorbells and the stovetop pressure cookers, there's not one that I'd actually want to use. Like, why would I risk getting injured in a pressure cooker explosion or lug around some huge old vacuum or spend money on a mechanical doorbell knowing my friends would probably just text instead? But something about the typewriter is different. And it can't just be because it's old. Like, that's just the initial attraction. If Erica is going to be mine, and I'm going to keep her alive and continue to adore her, I need to know more about her. The good and the bad. After the break, I take off the rose-colored glasses to take a glimpse into the complex legacy of the typewriter. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. I do not find nostalgia to be an innocent exercise. There's a danger in fetishizing the past or imagining that things were better in some Eden we've been forced to abandon. When I told my dad I'd fallen in love with a typewriter, he was like, ugh, why? It had never worked well for him. With a typewriter, you have to know exactly what you want to say before you say it. You can't work messily and piecemeal and edit as you go. It favors a certain kind of thinking, a certain kind of user. A typewriter very transparently does not fit the way I work. And yet, even if I were to be confronted by other old technologies that don't fit the way I work, like reel-to-reel tapes or a switchboard or an abacus, I would not attempt to use them. But with a typewriter, the interface hasn't changed. I know where to place my hands. The act of typing has stayed more or less the same since the QWERTY keyboard layout was invented in the 1870s. And even though early typewriters look like intimidating, ornate sewing machines, I could totally sit down and use one. A time traveler from the 1920s could quickly learn to email. I don't know if there's a lot of other examples of technology that both traveled so much and hadn't changed at all. Typewriter enthusiast and author of the book Shift Happens, Marcin Vishari. 
He says that part of why the typewriter invites so much love is that it is so transcendently understandable. But you can open a typewriter and very quickly you can get it. I mean, shot in the dark. Do you know anything <laughs> about my my typewriter? It's an Erica. With a, with a K, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know much. I think it's German, right? I think so. Yeah. So I think... I do not. You know, it's maybe just like one of those like hardworking, invisible typewriters. But I would say that most of typewriters were actually living kind of not the greatest lives. I think a lot of typewriters were just like a Rolodex. You, you just show up to work and you have this thing you have to type on. Martian says the typewriter caught on around the same time as the invention of the elevator. It was part of the birth of office culture. The typewriter was arguably a destroyer of romance because it removed all the personality in penmanship. Once we begin to write with typewriters, we're no longer talking about intimate communications, right? Like we're talking about cable letters. We're talking about uh, business letters. May I ask you to introduce yourself? I'm Dory Tunstall. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Design at Ontario College of Art and Design University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. As such, I'm the first Black and Black female dean of a faculty design anywhere in the world. I'm a researcher and a person who has wonderful relationship to design objects. Professor Tunstall points out there were some benefits to the death of the art of handwriting. Typing creates a standardization of, of communication where I may not even have, let's say, the intimacy to be able to decipher a person's handwriting. Oh. But if it's a, let's say it's a business letter, having the standardization makes it easily understandable. The typewriter is one of the roots of the culture of office behavior. You are expressing yourself in a standardized format. You're wearing a mask called professionalism. And once the mask was created, all sorts of other people could slip it on. Like for women, the typewriter presented an opportunity. It was a way into the office. There's a certain generation where, as an educated Black woman, and I think of this as my grandparents' generation to certain older sort of parents' generation, where it's like you could be a teacher, a secretary, or a nurse, right? This is a sign of upward mobility. I don't have to do laundry with my hands. I can type with my hands. But the other side of this was as soon as typing became secretarial work, it was considered menial labor that men didn't do. There was a point in time in the office when typewriter became a synonym for a secretary. So I went to Bryn Mawr College, which is an all-woman's college outside of Philadelphia. This is where I had professors who built their entire careers by dictating books that women had to type up for them. But now, with the computer... Everyone has to do their own typing. It's a mandatory skill. Like CEOs, guess what? They're writing their own emails, right? Typing became necessary for navigating daily life. Just like how we're all supposed to clean with our own individual vacuum cleaners and work out regularly with our own weights and whip up hearty meals after work in our Instant Pots. Today's tools are easier to use and do more for us, but they come loaded with expectations. To have a clean house, to make a healthy gourmet dinner, to look the best and feel the best and sleep the best. 
And so I was ready to come to the conclusion that all these products are taking us away from utopia, that they are only making us more tired, more haggard, more overwhelmed, more mediocre now that everyone is expected to do everything. But Professor Tunstall helped me see these objects in a more charitable light. So I'm all for every, like, I'm all for people cleaning for themselves. I'm all for people typing up their own correspondences. I'm all for people responsible for their own fitness. Because it means, it means you understand the value of that labor. Then you can't devalue that work. Even if you do decide to bring in someone else to do that work, you know what that work is like. Even in a white-collar context, if a CEO is looking to an executive assistant to send an email, they know what it physically feels like, what it entails to do that typing. They still may get paid more, but they can't devalue that labor. They can't devalue that labor because it's something that they're actively still participating in as well. And I wonder if that's created a design feedback loop, like now that CEOs have to type, typing is suddenly not supposed to be painful and strenuous. You know, any shitty $5 Dell keyboard in your office is more pleasant to use than a typewriter from an ergonomical <laughs> standpoint, right? Marcin Vishari brought up this other interesting point, which is that with the ease of typing, arguably with the death of the typewriter, came an entirely new way of communicating. Typing has essentially become a synonym for talking. Most of typing today is speaking with your fingers, right? We spend a lot more time like talking, like on Slack, on iMessage on all of these things, particularly with smartphones. Um, typewriters never gave us any of this. And I love that. Yeah, it's a complicated love, being on Slack and on email. But I do ultimately love being able to talk with my fingers. I love it. I love my laptop. And, and, and what's, <laughs> what's really beautiful about the particular laptop that I'm using now is that I've used it so much in the last five years that you can't actually read the letters on the keys anymore. The IT department at Professor Tunstall's university keeps getting mad at her because she won't switch to the new computer they sent her. IT is telling me, you need something new. You need to upgrade. You have to have something better. This is faster now. This is whatever now. Whatever you have is not good enough. We denigrate the intimacy that we build between knowledge of an object and then the object's knowledge of us. And there is a sense of like, I can't, I actually can't build a relationship with the technology, like not a long-term relationship with the technology. In design anthropology, there's this term coined by anthropologist Arthur Gell called enchantment. It's about the way we can love an object because its workings are unknown to us. It's like magic. Whereas the typewriter is lovable for its knowability and its honesty, my computer's glossy perfection invites a kind of fandom. I don't really know it at all, but I am in awe of it. I think people lo fall in love with different ways. For me, love is, is knowing. Like, to know a person, that to me is the, the thrill of loving a person. It's not the chase, right? It's not the first meeting. It's that... You know, 10 years from now, I can hear a sigh and I know that that means to get them vanilla ice cream. <laughs> mm. But for other people, love is that, that, that newness, that novelty, that excitement, right? And I've had to learn to respect that 
And and that's the challenge, right, that you have as a designer of how do you build in those different affordances of how people come to come to love an object. By and large, most modern products were designed for one kind of love. We've been conditioned this way, to let go easily and embrace the next model. Our callousness to our objects is the thing that we need to correct in ourselves for the entire planet to be able to survive. It is a privilege to discard. It is a privilege to assume that it's going to go away somewhere and not have an impact on something else in someplace else, right? And it's hard. So many objects are unable to be repaired. And consumerism has become so contorted that it makes almost no financial sense to care for something because repair often costs more than actually just buying a new thing. I think our problem is that we don't love our objects enough, right? That I can dispose of them without any sense of regard for the life that they have afterwards. So a lot of this responsibility falls on manufacturers and designers, but consumers have to be open to making the relationship work, to become less intimidated by attachment, to repair, and to demand an ability to repair. So... My wish is that we love our objects more and that we then, as designers, design our objects with the assumption, right? The assumption that they need to last long. For me, it's a fight against planned obsolescence. And you do that by um, loving your objects. Everything that you bring into your life, you should, there should be some love relationship there. Who knows which of your objects will be the last to outlive you, to be treasured by someone who once knew you or didn't know you at all? Objects are the best way to incite story, right? To incite storytelling. So someone, you know, 500 years from now is going to look at the keyboard on my laptop and be like, why is this all rubbed out? Erica's owner, the one who hit the letter P so many times it had to be replaced, this person would probably be tickled that Erica lives in my apartment and that I love her so much. And I have no idea who I'm saving Erica for next. In what is today Chinatown in Manhattan, there was once an incredibly notorious slum called The Five Points. At its peak in the 19th century, it was one of the most densely populated and destitute urban areas in the Western world. And it was considered the origin of the American melting pot because newly emancipated Black people and ethnic Irish lived cheek to jowl. And that cultural blend is what led to the creation of tap dancing. Actually, it's a combination of Irish step dancing and a West African jube. But I only bring this up because there's almost no physical evidence that the five points ever existed. All the artifacts from the Five Points were gathered up and displayed in the World Trade Center. And on 9-11, a small, random handful of objects happened to be on loan elsewhere. Some clay smoking pipes, a miniature porcelain teacup, a collection of glass marbles. These are now in the permanent collection of the Museum of the City of New York, as the only artifacts remaining to evidence this entire chapter of American history. And the owner of that pipe or that teacup could have never known. There's no real way to 
bet against entropy in any meaningful way and be like, no, this will survive. I mean, you can do some things. What Jason did with the Titel collection is exceedingly rare, even for him. It's so unusual that someone just says, we will take all of it. When you come across the collection of a home, of a lifetime, long after the curator is gone, it usually doesn't stay intact. Because entropy wants to constantly snap things apart for its value. And so if you take someone's house, the first thing we do is like we fillet out like the personal effects that we can sell and then the furniture we can get rid of and then the fixtures that we can resell and like we break it apart. Because a home is a temporary stop. Everything scatters back out into the world. So you can only ever hold on lightly. Jason Scott has loaned me Erica to take care of her. But he could ask for her back at any time, or I could move, or anything could happen tomorrow. And all I can do is try to enjoy our time together and do my best to take care of her. Well, even this machine, sure, it's not the best. And it's very simple. And that being said, it's still beautiful. And... It still functions, and it has a high probability of functioning for decades to come. Not all of the 143 typewriters will stick around. That number will dwindle. But for now, 143 just so happens to be numeric code for I love you. And there's a reason they don't call it walking carefully into love. They call it falling in love. It's not exactly rational. And that's the best part about it. It means that under the crushing weight of entropy, we have a choice of what we want to hold on to. Nice Try is a collective effort from Megan Kinane, our senior producer, Diana Buds and Sarah Burke, our associate producers, fact-checking by Serena Solon, Lisa Pollock is our editorial consultant, our engineer is Alex Higgins, our theme song is by Greg Pliska, with additional scoring by Alex Higgins and me. Special thanks to Curbed editor Sukjong Hong. For their invaluable help this season, special thanks to Brandon Santos, Leo Delgadillo, Amani Orr, and Ode White on our communications and marketing teams, Kristen DiMatteo, Marcus Peabody, Chanel Persad, and Elenia Gapis on our design team. And very special thanks as well to the brilliant Shannon Mattern. Your writing and conversation about maintenance and repair formed so much of our thinking, both inside and outside the context of this podcast. Our showrunner is Art Chung. Our executive producers are Nishat Kurwa and Kelsey Keith. And if you find yourself at the corner of Worth and Baxter in downtown Manhattan, you'll see this little co-naming street sign that serves as the monument to the existence of the Five Points. It only came up last year, and my dad was actually a rallying force to help get that installed. So, thanks, Dad. This episode was written and performed by me, Avery Truffleman. Nice Try is a product of Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Thank you for listening.